Hi, I'm Curious City producer Joe Dassault. For decades, Chicago has been an incubator for punk and indie rock. Bands like Sludgeworth and Braid earned their stripes in local bars and basement shows back in the 1990s. These acts offered a dose of nostalgia as part of the lineup for 2023's Riot Fest in Douglas Park. Their music, sounding as fresh and vital today as it did back when it was written, no doubt fueled yet another generation of young punks. And while summer events like Riot Fest offer a moment in time for music fans of any age to connect, it's just that, just a moment. But with such a vibrant independent music scene, one listener asked us, why aren't there any licensed all-ages live music venues in the city? To be clear, there is no specific city-issued license for an all-ages venue. We'll just say things get complicated once alcohol is involved. But there isn't really a dedicated place where teens can just show up knowing they'll be able to watch a band any night of the week. It's a challenge kids have faced throughout the decades. Generally, it's a patchwork of spots. Venues like Subterranean, Chop Shop, and Bottom Lounge have all-ages nights here or a 17-plus show there. But there was a moment nearly 30 years ago when a then-dank, rundown spot not known for music opened its doors and, for a little over a decade... Let the walls shake and music blare for audiences of all ages, including kids far and wide, to throw on their Doc Martens and flannels and mosh, nod their heads, and sing along. It was a bowling alley, a literal bowling alley, and it wasn't even a nice or a large bowling alley. It was grimy, it was run down, and it was small. It had charm, though. Up next, teenage angst and the all-ages venue that could, the Fireside Bowl, and the community it helped foster. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Growing up in the Chicago area in the 1980s and 90s, kids like Daryl Wilson and Joe Principe were like other teens, filled with a little rage and plenty of disenfranchisement, and finding an outlet for that angst in music that grabbed them by their adolescent collars. I got into punk when I was really young, like probably fourth grade. my, My sister, she's five years older than me. I was skating, and I remember this kid brought a tape to like a session we were skating at. And he goes, hey, you got to listen to this. And so on that tape had bands like Circle Jerks, The Adolescents, Suicidal Tendencies. The music and the message of that music, the culture, punk meant freedom. It meant challenging authority. 
It meant anti-hate. Kids like Daryl and Joe latched onto punk ideology. It became part of their identity. If you were lucky, there were a handful or so of punks at your school, especially for kids at the time like Daryl, who switched schools and states in his mid-teens. And so you'd see the kids who were also freaks like me, right? So then you got that kinship already like, hey, who's this new freak that's in town? But eventually, listening to these bands on cassette or vinyl wasn't enough. He wanted to see this music up close and personal. Some bars and clubs would host all-ages nights from time to time. But more often than not, you'd find yourself at a DIY show. BFW halls, basements. There was a church in Elmhurst that, that started doing shows. It's like people found ways to make things happen. Eventually, Daryl and Joe started discovering local bands, too. That was a game changer for both of them. I was blown away that those bands were local. Like, I just thought, like, oh, I'll, like, good bands, like, they're, they're not from here. Like, they're, 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 like, California or New York. Like, I had no idea. So then I started discovering, you know, bands like Sludgeworth, Screeching Weasel. Then, of course, I stumbled like, upon, like, Naked Ray Gun. Once Joe and Daryl realized that punk bands, great punk bands, were coming out of Chicago, that empowered them. They felt like they could do it, too. Daryl, who today is an emergency room doctor in suburban Chicago, helped start a band back in 1989, The Meanwhile, over in Melrose Park, Joe who is currently part of the hardcore punk band Rise Against, crossed that divide from fan to performer in the early 90s when he started playing bass for 88 Fingers Louie. By 1993, Chicago's scene was blowing up. Even the circles that Daryl and Joe's bands were playing in spanned in a variety of styles. We all came from just different sides of the punk kind of globe, right? Like, it was nice to have that eclectic kind of lineup and, you know, kind of just help each other out. But the punk scene here was scattered throughout the city and suburbs and was in dire need of a home base, and one that catered to people of all ages. About this time, people started hearing about some pop-up shows that were happening at a bowling alley in Logan Square. In the early 1990s, the Fireside Bowl on Fullerton Avenue was on the brink of going under. After years, no, decades of disrepair, something needed to change. It was kind of a rundown, hole-in-the-wall type of thing. It was in really bad shape at that time. That's Jim Lipinski, owner of the Fireside. He tells me that the building was converted to a bowling alley in 1941. He thinks the building's name was a playoff of U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt's radio addresses. My fellow Americans. At that time, the Roosevelt had had the fireside chats. I can say with utmost confidence that no Americans. And there was a fireplace in here, so they just called it Fireside Bowl. In 1964, Jim's dad purchased it. And over the next three decades, the bowling alley slowly declined. Though Jim says his dad poured his heart into the venue and was good with his money, he says his dad also sort of ran it into the ground. He procrastinated a lot, 
he battled the roof leaking problems for years, never really getting that fixed properly. By the 90s, Jim had effectively taken over for his father and was weighing options on what to do with the place. Yeah, initial instinct was to sell it. We were going to try to find a buyer and do things. And then as that came up, there was an eminent Dwayne case that happened. They wanted to expand the park that's directly west of us. They wanted to come east. Because the fireside appeared to be on the brink, and they were going back and forth with the city over eminent domain terms, Jim was open to offering the space for atypical events. Around this time, a guy named Russ Forrester had taken advantage of the alley's open lane night and created an ongoing weekly event that gave this bowling alley its first real musical identity. But it wasn't punk. Live again with Disco Bowling. And you're invited every Monday night at the Fireside Bowl 2648. Russ was at the time hosting these disco nights and low-key running a punk label, Underdog Records. What kind of bowling is this? Uh, This is Fireside Bowling, Disco Bowling. Russ's event was even featured in the Urban Oddities program, Wild Chicago. I just started bowling here one week and a few people were with me. He happened to mention the Fireside to Martin Sorondegui as an option to book one-off punk shows. Martin was lead singer of Los Crudos, a Latino hardcore punk band hailing out of Chicago's Pilsen neighborhood. Russ told Martin, There's this bowling alley, and he he was like, it's it's like about to go out of business or something. It's like they're desperate to do stuff, and I think they're willing to do shows. And, you know, there was no stage yet. It was just the lanes, and off the side where the bathrooms were, this little back corner was where the bands would play. That was the first time I heard of the Fireside. From there, Martine helped set up a few shows at Fireside. Around this time, a few others started popping up on Fireside owner Jim Lipinski's radar and booking gigs there. That included a couple of guys who'd been booking shows in Chicago and the suburbs, everywhere from bars to basements. Well, then it was Dave Eves and Brian Peterson. They started doing the punk bands. They just came in one day and said they could bring people in on a regular basis. So I said, okay, let's give it a try. I didn't have anything to lose at that time because pretty much I was under the assumption that the M&L domain was going to happen pretty soon. Couldn't really put money into the place, so kind of grew from there. Joe Principe says that around this time, his band 88 Fingers Louie was approached to do a show there. We were supposed to play a venue in Chicago, and it got shut down last minute. And then he's like, oh, I can move the show to, to a bowling alley in Chicago, Fireside Bowl. And there was probably like 20 people there. Hey, party! It's tough to say which band christened the era of Fireside Bowl as a music spot. Could have been Martins. Could have been folks on the bill with 88 Fingers Louie. But by the summer of 1994, Fireside truly began to transform from a rundown bowling alley into, well, a rundown punk rock venue. Once things started to build, there was a realization that they needed staff. Like people to run sound and muscle to lug gear and help out bands and eventually run the door, like Francisco Ramirez. I was just a big oaf. (laughs) I would just show up in my chain wallet and pack of cigarettes. He was also in a few bands that played there early on, including the Traders. As much as the music and people were important to the fireside, the building itself was sort of a character in the story. Francisco describes the situation. Walking into Fireside, (laughs) it had carpet at the time, which was disgusting. It smelled like smoke. 
because everybody smoked. And there wasn't stage lights at the time. So they would just have those fluorescent lights on the whole time. So it was ugly. I just remember there wasn't a stage. It was just a vocal PA. And that was it. Bands sometimes threw their guitars through drop ceilings. But we saved the best attraction for last. The bathroom at the fireside is is the stuff of legend. Horrible. They were really, really nasty, gnarly bathrooms. One listener said it was especially bad in the women's bathroom. At one show, a door stall came off its hinges, and she and another patron took turns lifting up the door so each could have privacy. Among the many fixtures at the fireside were the personalities, the random guy who sold flowers at shows, the late Wesley Willis, a towering musician and artist who offered gentle headbutts and a hearty say ra to fellow patrons. This band played at the fireside bowl. About 250 people were at the Rock and Roll show. The Rock and Roll was awesome. It whooped the jackass's ass. And one curmudgeonly guy who usually sat behind the bar, nicknamed Hammer. A short, stocky guy with a mustache and high-pitched voice. Like, there are characters in this world, right? And Hammer was a staple. If he wasn't there, you're like, something was wrong. You know, it was like something was off in the universe. He didn't know how to make a drink. He would just say, oh, you don't want that. He'd give you whatever he felt comfortable making. But if it was ever a complicated drink, Hammer couldn't make it. And being the lovable grump is what made Hammer the staple he was. <laughs> But what really made the Fireside special was the cross-section of bands and fans it helped raise and foster. You had this place that everybody felt accepted. Everybody felt that they belonged. It felt like our clubhouse it was your punk rock cheers, right? You, everybody knew you when you walked in. Every day of the week, you had a place to go to. By the mid-1990s, the Fireside was hitting its stride. The venue had gained a reputation as a lovable, grimy stop that looked out for its bands and fans. The community was coming together. But there was an upheaval on the horizon. The area still had violence. Longtime neighbors were being displaced as the area became more gentrified. And this little punk rock venue that could tried to defy the odds. That's all coming up after the break. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. While the punk scene was and still is a predominantly white male scene, it's also long been a community that's welcomed diversity. In Chicago, people were finding out about this all-ages club, the Fireside Bowl, that was becoming a hub for that kind of inclusivity. Francisco Ramirez, the door guy and punk rocker, felt like that connection for Latinos was natural. 
I feel like Chicago has a good history of Latinos in punk rock, for sure. And they still do. And the Fireside opened Latino bands up to audiences that might not venture down to the South Side. Daryl from the Bull Weevil says he always felt accepted in punk rock, and the Fireside was no different. But he was fully aware that he stood out. We got uh, new CD back there. As an African-American kid who likes punk rock, but you could always count on one hand how many people of color at the show. Going to shows in general, you're looking around and you look for the kid who looks like me and say, hey, yeah, cool, I'm here, I'm glad you're here too. Inclusivity crossed generations too. Miss Alex White remembers when she caught her first fireside show in 1997. I go in there, it's my 13th birthday, and my mom goes up to the door guy and she was like, is this cool? Like, is this okay that I'm like dropping my kid off here? And he was like, yeah, she'll be fine. She felt safe as a young woman in that space too. I would just say that, you know, growing up here in the city of Chicago and going to CPS that the people that I was hanging out with, the scene was very diverse in terms of all the different students and tweens and teens who were converging on the fireside. Whereas Black, Hispanic, queer, Asian, it was all identities kind of united just by like the ability to hang out somewhere that was all ages. And people were listening to hip hop and punk and two-tone ska. But there was a slower walk toward inclusion for the LGBTQ community, though its presence was made known early on in the Fireside's tenure as an all-ages venue. Queer promoters Homocore Chicago booked shows there. Martine from Los Crudos started coming out publicly while on tour, testing the waters before making the announcement on stage at the Fireside. You know, it was was awkward, it was nerve-wracking, but I did it, and the response was really positive at first it seemed really awesome and i think you know some kids jumped up and gave me a hug and it was awesome i think there were little ripples that happened afterwards with people who you know were a little homophobic didn't like it but for the most part it was a really positive kind of moment so that was nice sometimes punks drew in unwanted elements like intolerance people we spoke with said that part of the reason the fireside felt largely inclusive is because the community self-policed they looked out for one another. Yeah, I mean, back in the day, there were Nazi punks that were at shows and things like that, and so we'd have to take care of that. Sometimes that meant fights. But more often than that, when trouble erupted, the fireside community and venue pulled together. Like one time, Francisco recalls when a skinhead showed up wearing Nazi pins. People were telling Francisco they were going to beat the guy up. So I would go to him like, hey, listen, this is not a good place for you to be. There's a lot of people that are angry that you're here. I'm going to give you your money back, but you need to leave and I'll walk you to your car or bus, whatever, however you got here. I'll take you so you're safe. I mean, I didn't, obviously I didn't, wasn't happy that they were there, but I didn't want somebody to just get destroyed at the club because they're an idiot. It's that kind of self-protection that the community came to know whether or not it was white supremacist starting stuff. Shows at the fireside were taking off. Owner Jim Lipinski was able to make modest improvements to the space. Very modest. Miss Alex White, who played her first show there when she was just 15, 
remembers going to certain shows and being blown away. Something important was unfolding before her eyes. I do remember being at a couple shows where I was like, whoa, this is important that I'm here right now. And the ones that really stand out to me was like TV on the radio played the fireside and they were just absolutely incredible and knocked my socks off. Like I had never seen anything like that before. In the years following the Second World War... Seeing Manor Astro Man, they had cathode ray tubes, you know, like old TVs as their backdrop. Rockets or guided missiles grew larger and larger. And we are like, this is awesome. Christopher Gutierrez grew up in the punk scene and hung out with a lot of the bands. He remembers acts that were just getting on people's radars, performing at Fireside. Jimmy Eat World played there. And when you think about it and you're like, oh, well, yeah, it was a small venue. It was like, no. This time it's on my it was a grimy, shitty bowling alley that Blink-182 was playing, that My Chemical Romance was playing. You know, that Taking Back Sunday, Rise Against, Fall Out Boy, all these bands that are... Fall Boy just played Wrigley Field. The Fireside was selling out shows by local bands and touring acts alike. Crowds could grow to shockingly large sizes, far surpassing the venue's license capacity. But Francisco Ramirez says they had friendlies outside. Remember the cops came in? We had a big show. And they were just like, you need to get these people out of here within 10 minutes. So we had people, we stopped the show, made an announcement. We had people go out the back door. And we're like, hey, just so you know, they're, they're going to come and do an inspection. As soon as they leave, everybody's come back in. So they basically played with no lights on. And it was jam-packed with, I think, I, I think 500 people. It was packed. And even on the off nights when attendance was low, Brian, head looker-outer for the community, had people's backs. The one thing that Brian was very adamant about was touring bands get paid something. If there's two people there... He'd pee out of pocket or run a tab with the venue. Local bands would kick in, too. While music blared inside the fireside... It wasn't so copacetic with the neighborhood. It was a mix of things. The neighborhood around the club was rough at the time. Plenty of families living just around the corner, but also gang activity and various forms of violence took place along that stretch of Fullerton where Fireside resides. And perhaps most alarming for patrons and residents alike. I remember there was a number of times where they were like, hey, nobody go outside. There was just a drive-by shooting right in front, right on the corner. You know, there was always shootings around there. Neighborhood residents complained of loudness from the fireside's crowds, parking issues, public urination, and intoxication. Here's Christopher Gutierrez. The drinking outside, the underage drinking, and the violence kind of thing. The violence wasn't too prevalent, but it was there. But mostly the vandalism that started happening inside where, you know, you put a bunch of knuckleheads in a room and there's you put a bunch of heavy balls out. 
they're going to start throwing them or being idiots with them. Gentrification was on the rise, and another issue saddled the fireside and its future. Early on in Jim Lipinski's tenure as owner of the fireside, the city became interested in acquiring the land it stood on. Jim says that the aldermen and city pushed to take over several buildings on that block using eminent domain. It went on for a very long time. They'd send different court documents and, and legal documents and different lawyers back and forth. Jim says it went like that with the city for years, and he was getting tired of it. At its peak, the fireside booked upwards of six to seven nights a week, which sometimes included two shows a night. Despite the money coming in, Jim says he felt like even if he won his battle with the city, he didn't want to deal with the risk that came with running a club. He wanted a simpler day-to-day, the kind he'd have if he ran it as a full-time bowling alley. Oh, I think there's probably several times I said that I really don't want to do this anymore. To many, the end felt inevitable. On August 20th, 2004, the inevitable finally happened. It was shockingly abrupt, but also surprising that it had taken so long. So the night that we stopped doing shows, we had a double show. And the headliner for the early show was MU330 from St. Louis, a ska punk band. All of a sudden, I had worked the early show. I was a manager at the time that the other manager came and he's like, hey, we got to pull the safe out. We're closing down. It's like, oh, okay. This era of music, the fireside, was coming to an abrupt, unceremonious ending. And then the late show was like a garage rock show. I remember sitting there with my two friends hanging out and overhearing that that would be the last show at the fireside. Where they're like, that's it. This is the last one. We're like, what are you talking about? So word spread that it was the last show at Fireside. And place filled up. And things went missing. Bowling pins, trophies, bowling balls. I walked out with a a trophy and a bowling pin. But yeah, it it was a wild night. The Fireside will forever be a spot where countless bands got a foothold in the punk rock scene. It was a venue where Chicago's up-and-coming bookers learned how to get paid and make money in the music world. We are the nowhere generation. We are the kids that no one wants. Nearly 30 years on, Daryl Wilson's band The Bowl Weevils and Joe Principe's Rise Against are still putting out music. And what they learned within these walls of this grimy club, they're still taking with them. Even though we went there, it was a bowling alley. It's still a punk rock venue. It's written in the walls. I guess the whole idea of the fireside is its own kind of surreal, weird um, fantasy that that you kind of walk through this halcyon dream of being at the fireside and go, that really happened and you were a part of it. It's crazy. I'm really grateful for how where their their hearts were in the right spot. They're, they never took advantage of bands. And 
they were just very sincere about what they were doing. And, and Brian still is still doing it. But I owe them everything, you know? Like, I don't know if they realize that. Like, that's what got all of us our start. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation and is produced by Jason Mark and me. Adriana Cardona-McGeegat is Curious City's reporter. Maggie Sibbett is the digital and engagement producer. Susie Ahn is our editor. Curious City is a production of WBEZ Chicago and is part of the NPR Network. I'm Joe Dassault. Thanks for listening. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org slash curious. Thank you.